Hi, Gary Zacharias again with the Apologist Bookshelf. I get to do a book today that I have not done previously in my earlier podcasts. It's called The Atheist Delusion. The author is Dr. Phil Fernandez. And I'm excited about this because I had a chance to meet Phil and uh, really appreciate his ministry. And uh, his Facebook stuff is a lot of fun to look at. Uh, he's he's talked about uh, Willie Mays, and that's my hero too, as far as far as baseball goes. So uh, neat guy. So his book here is called The Atheist Illusion: A Christian Response to Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. And one of the people on the back cover who endorse it is Sean McDowell. I'm sure most of you have heard of. And he, he says Phil does a masterful job of unmasking the pretentious arguments of the new atheists while setting forth. A Powerful Case for Christianity. I highly recommend it. And I would say ditto. I highly recommend this book as well. So here's what he's doing. He's taking on some of these claims of the new atheists like, well, science has disproved God or Christianity is intolerant or you've got evil and that gets rid of the idea of God or why in the world would you believe there are miracles? Come on, we're in the 21st century now. Uh, the, his, the New Testament is not historically reliable. Uh, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. If you teach children about God, that's child abuse. Well, those are all powerful, important chapters to take a look at. So I would suggest uh, get a hold of this book. Very easy to read. I want to focus on chapter 11. Did Jesus really claim to be God? And he's pointing out that there are a lot of New Testament scholars that reject Jesus' claims to be God. They say, well, Sure, some of them are in there, but they were actually put there by the early church. In other words, they went back and messed with the documents. Okay, so you can see where that's going. But he says, you know, if you even go back to the ancient creeds that are earlier than the New Testament, some of them go back to pretty close to the time of Jesus. They represent the teachings of the apostles. And several of them, you look at these creeds, these uh, statements of faith, they teach the deity of Jesus. And he gives some references. I won't read the verses, but Philippians 2, 5 to 11, Romans 10, 9 and 10, 1 Timothy three sixteen. So he said, we shouldn't doubt that Jesus claimed to be God. Well, he says the Jews knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. He went to John 5 and it says, this is Jesus talking. My father is working until now, and I myself am working for this cause. Therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the Jews knew what Jesus was saying. And it says, uh, actually, if you think about it, Jesus, if he was really being misunderstood, no, 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 I didn't mean to say I was God. He could have clarified his words, couldn't he? He was executed for blasphemy. So he could have taken care of that if that was a misconception. Jesus accepted worship. We are only supposed to worship God. And he's got all sorts of verses referencing that. Matthew 2, Matthew 14, Matthew 28, John 9, John 20. And Jesus said in John 8, Before Abraham was born, I am. Well, the I am statement, of course, is the name that God gave himself when he revealed himself to Moses. And here's Jesus saying, I'm the I am. He's claiming eternity. I mean, see, that's really, really important. As uh, Phil points out, Jesus didn't say before Abraham was, I was. That would just say, well, I've been around longer than Abraham. Well, that's quite a claim. But he says more than that. He's saying present tense, I am. So he's claiming eternal existence, not just predating Abraham. Uh, in John 10, 
Jews say, We're, we want to stone you for blasphemy because you make yourself out to be God. So he's making himself equal to God. How about in John 14, 9? What did Jesus say? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Wow. He asked God to return to him the glory, which he and the Father shared before the universe was created. That's John 17. Well, who, who existed before creation? Only God. We see that in Isaiah 42, 8. So Jesus is claiming to be God. Then Phil takes a look at the apostles. They're Jesus' closest associates. They knew him better than anybody else, and they called him God. Matthew 1, 23, John 1, 1, John 20, 28, Philippians 2, 6, Colossians 2, 9, Titus 2, 13, 2 Peter 1, 1. That's more confirmation. So he says, as Phil says here, you know, you consider the strong evidence for the reliability of the New Testament. Now, that's in a different chapter, obviously, so, you know, we can't cover that now, but his claims to deity can't be seen as legend. Now, the case for his deity is based on these explicit claims, but as Phil points out, well, wait a minute, there are going to be some New Testament scholars that are going to throw out these explicit claims. He said, all right, let's build a case based on Jesus's implicit claims. So here we go. Larry Hurtado, Phil reports, has a book out called The Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you know, when Paul was writing in 49 to 50 AD, he had a high Christology. He was already referencing Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ. He was equating God and Jesus the same. Yet Paul mentions Jesus' deity in passing. He didn't argue for it. Why is that? Well, Paul loved to debate, didn't he? So if there's any debate in the early church considering what Jesus was, whether he was really God or not, Paul would have made the case for Jesus' deity, but he doesn't. He assumes his readers already accepted the deity of Christ. What about the Son of Man sayings? He says many scholars will actually acknowledge these sayings as authentic. Why? But it's a critical principle called discontinuity that says if Jesus said something in the Gospels, that was dissimilar to what the Jews would have said and dissimilar to what the early church taught, then it was probably legit. It was probably actually uttered by Jesus. Now, what about the Son of Man? Well, that's, that's not, uh, it was not in common use by the Jews, and the church never used that. Well, he says almost never used that title for Jesus, but that's what he called himself more than anything else. So the point is that principle of discontinuity shows the Son of Man sayings were probably legitimate utterances of Jesus. But when you see those Son of Man sayings, what did Jesus say about them? He predicted his death and resurrection numerous times using this statement, Son of Man, that's Mark 8, 9, 10. He claimed to be equal to God and have the power to forgive sins, that's Mark 2. He claimed to be the Son of God and the Jewish Messiah, and he said he would come back to judge the world. Wow, that's Mark 14. He claimed he came to earth to die, to give his life a ransom for many. That's Mark 10. Uh, some critics are going to try to reject these passages where he calls himself the Son of God, but what about Mark 13, 32? This is an interesting passage. Jesus calls himself the Son, but he admits, because of his human nature, he doesn't know when he's going to return. See, that's a new principle there that Phil points out. It's the principle of embarrassment. Why would the apostles place these words on the lips of Jesus if he didn't really say them? Because it shows Jesus had a limitation to his knowledge. So because you don't want to put anything about Jesus that would be embarrassing, uh, 
accept that it was true, then the principle is, if it would embarrass the church, but it's in there anyway, it probably really was spoken by Jesus. And then here's something else that's more of an implicit view of uh, how Jesus saw himself. The way he interpreted the Mosaic law, his interpretation, he said, had as much authority as the law itself. He didn't, notice he doesn't quote from other rabbis. Jesus doesn't say, well, rabbi so-and-so says, but in contrary to the practice, he'd go right to the Old Testament and he'd interpret it himself. He'd start off saying, truly, truly, I say to you. So that showed that he saw his interpretation of God's law as authoritative as the law itself. So Phil wraps up this part here. He says, if you take Paul's writings, the Gospel of Mark, even the Q material, that's possibly passages that came from, that are found both in Matthew and Luke, but not in Mark. If you take the ancient sermons of Acts, chapters 1 to 12, you take the ancient creeds, they all portray one thing, Jesus as God incarnate. And these things happened before 70 AD. So this is very early. Jesus also saw himself as the only one who could provide salvation. John 3, 6, 11, and 14. Jesus says that the Last Supper, his body would be broken, his blood would be shed for the sins of the human race for us to be forgiven. He sees himself as the Savior of mankind. The apostles also taught that, that salvation came only through Jesus. Not That doesn't sound like something you would say about a, a human, right? Paul, Paul proclaimed salvation is by God's grace alone through faith. That's Ephesians 1 and 2 and Romans 3 and 5 and 6 and 10. It's in Galatians 1 and Galatians 3. So over and over, Jesus saw himself and the disciples saw Jesus as the Savior of mankind. He also considered himself to be the Messiah, although Jesus' favorite title for himself was not Messiah. It was the Son of Man. But he did admit in several places that he was the Messiah. He said that to Peter, the Samaritan woman, and the Jewish high priest. But think about this. As Phil points out, if the early church is making up this stuff about Jesus, they would put more about the Messiahship because that would be really, really important. But instead, it's just mentioned two or three times. So Jesus is saying other things about himself, which probably makes those other things truthful statements. He says, well, you've got a lot of popular writers these days that reject this first century portrait of Jesus as Messiah and as Savior and as God. So what do they do instead? They have brought forth what they call the Gnostic Gospels to say, you know, Jesus wasn't God. He wasn't Savior. He wasn't the Messiah. He was a guru. He imparted secret knowledge. And so you get Gnostic writings like the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Philip, Mary, etc. By the way, you can look them up. You can read them. They're around online. He says they're rejected, though. They were rejected by the early church for a lot of good reasons. One, they're written too late. They're probably in the mid-100s AD. That's 100 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So they didn't have apostolic authority. They didn't come from eyewitnesses. They didn't even come from people who knew the eyewitnesses. Secondly, a problem with them is these Gnostic writings were deceptive. They're called pseudepigrapha. They were forgeries. The people that wrote them were not the people they claimed to be. And then third, a reason these Gnostic writings got rejected by the church was 
they were heretical. They rejected salvation through faith. Instead, you got salvation through secret knowledge. Right? The word Gnosticism comes from the word gnosis, means knowledge. The ancient Gnostics rejected the entire Old Testament. They said that was an evil book. It was written by an evil God. And matter is evil and the spiritual realm is totally good. <clears throat> so they actually opposed the teachings of the Old Testament and the God of the Jewish faith. Well, here's another criticism about Jesus. Well, okay, so you got all these claims about him being this special person, but he's just another ancient myth, all right, that the early church borrowed from ancient pagan myths, you know, Osiris or Mithras or whatever it is. This is not really true of Jesus. They're just, he's a copycat savior. But he points out two people that have looked at this, Ronald Nash and J.P. Moreland, have refuted this myth hypothesis. Why? Well, first, there are a lot of differences between the New Testament information about Jesus and these ancient myths. For one thing, there's a huge gap of time between these myths when they supposedly happened and when they got written down. And the fact is, as Phil points out, in most cases, the subject of the myth isn't even a historical person or event, unlike the New Testament. Secondly, these myths that sound like they started before Christianity were actually written after the New Testament writings were complete. So, if there was any borrowing, it was probably mythology that borrowed from Christianity. A third problem with these ideas of these myths, the mystery religions, the Mithras and Osiris, now they were syncretistic, which means they blended beliefs from other religions, kind of a smorgasbord with their own beliefs. But just like Judaism, Christianity was very exclusive. They didn't borrow from other religions. Fourth, Phil says that J.P. Moreland shows that these so-called similarities between the Gospels and the pagan myths were often exaggerated by skeptics. They're not very similar at all. A fifth problem with these, these ancient mystery religions, they really were concerned more about having a religious experience or an emotional state. It wasn't much about doctrine, but Christianity was just the opposite. Huge emphasis on history and correct doctrine. It wasn't your subjective state about how you feel it was the doctrine that was important. Sixth thing, the writers of these ancient myths, they didn't write as if they expected their readers to take them literally. Well, that's not the way the gospel writers come across. They sounded like they were recording real history. I remember uh, uh, J. Warner Wallace, as a cop, says as he started reading the New Testament, he says, this is reading like real, authentic you know, eyewitness reporting. Here's a seventh problem with these mystery religions. The vast majority, says, of the world's leading New Testament scholars don't even try anymore to trace the origin of Christianity to these pagan myths. So that's starting to disappear. So how does he sum up this chapter? Here's what Phil Fernandez says. He said the Jesus that are, that's found in the New Testament, he's not a myth. He didn't get borrowed from ancient myths. The New Testament was written by reliable eyewitnesses. They were sincere. In fact, they were so sincere, they were willing to suffer and die for their beliefs. They weren't telling stories. They didn't borrow. They were telling accurately what they saw and what they heard. As he points out, people don't die for legends or myths. They witnessed the miracles of Jesus and his post-resurrection appearances. They saw him as fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. They believed, authentically really believed, he was God, Messiah, and Savior. So, Again, I want to uh, highly recommend this book called The Atheist Delusion. Phil Fernandez is the author, a, a really good guy and a terrific writer, a good thinker. 
Well, thanks for uh, being part of this, and let's do another podcast soon.